Our text tonight is actually verse 10 of that parable that we read in Matthew 25. The door was shut, but I'd like really for us to consider the parable as a whole. And really in this passage, the Lord Jesus is telling us what will happen at the end of the world. And no doubt we've met people who have the attitude, well, you know, who cares what happens at the end of the world? You know, I'm not going to be there. But that is very wrong because the Bible tells us that everybody will be there. Even if we are dead and buried, the Bible says that we will be raised up to face that final day. People don't just cease or disappear when they die, they will be raised up. And that is why the end of the world is so important for you and me. That is why we need to consider the great lessons that we find here, because everybody's going to be there. It will be a unique moment, and there will never be another occasion like it. And it is so important to understand what is ahead and how we can be ready for that day, that we don't neglect these great things and these urgent things that we need to be prepared for eternity. And you'll find in this passage that the Savior declares three parables. The first is in verses 1 to 13, the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, virgins being unmarried girls and chaste. The next parable is from verses 14 to 30, the parable of the talents. And then in verses 31 to 46, you've got the parable of the sheep and goats. And all of them deal with this whole matter of the end, the end of the world. And uh, we're only going to consider the first tonight. In that text, as I've mentioned, the door was shut. Now, as many of you will know, a parable was an earthly story with a heavenly meaning that Jesus told. But friend, we must always get to the heavenly meaning, to the spiritual meaning. Otherwise, these things will never benefit us. And so we need to ask the question, well, what is happening in this particular parable? What is the the theme? What is the overview of what the Lord is teaching? And what is the spiritual significance for us? And so let's consider this parable firstly together and this reality that behold, the bridegroom is coming. And so in verse 1, the scene is set. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And so these ten virgins represent those who profess to be Christians, those who claim to be the people of God in this world. And the reason why the Lord Jesus calls them ten virgins is because the Lord's people, though not perfect, try to pursue holiness and purity. They don't love sin as other people do. They are different from the world. And so here is a picture of those who profess to be the Lord's people, those who desire to live pure lives and not defile themselves with sin. And then we're told that these ten virgins have lamps. And uh, they were oil lamps made from stone or clay with a place for the oil inside and the lamp would have a wick and uh, the wick would be in the oil and when it was lit it would make a a small flame at the end like a a candle and it would bear a very small light but essential in such darkness. And so the bridegroom they know is coming and they were to light their lamps and to lead him in. This was their job and they were supposed to be ready to do it. And oil in the lamps was part of the means by which they would get this job done. No oil meant that they had neglected the means appointed for them to do this work and undertake this role. Now, these lamps 
they represent profession of the Lord Jesus. Now, all these 10 virgins, they professed to be followers of Christ, as it were, and that's the point. They had these, these little lamps, and Jesus Christ in the Bible is called the light of the world, and those who follow him are compared with, with lights, with lamps. And the Lord Jesus said about his followers, you are the light of the world. And so that's what's represented here by these lamps, the light of the knowledge of God. And your friends, it is so sad that there are so many who've never read the Bible, who've never heard the gospel, who've never been around the precious means uh, spoken of in the scripture. And, you know, we're told in the word of God that they are living and dying in darkness. They don't know God. They don't know the way to God. They don't know the way to heaven. And tragically, there are many people all around us, even in our own town, and it's heartbreaking. They are living and dying in darkness. And they desperately need the light of the gospel to shine brightly. And so in this parable, verse 1 tells us that these ten virgins, those who profess Christ, they go out to meet the bridegroom. Now, of course, the bride is a a lady on her wedding day, the bridegroom, a man. And on that day, they come together before the Lord to exchange their, their vows and their rings to, to join in that solemn covenant. And they belong to one another as man and wife. And we find here a, a great picture of a wedding to come. And the bridegroom is the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only saviour of sinners. Now you say, well, why is he called the bridegroom? Well, there's going to be a wedding in the end of history, when time and the world come to its end. There's not going to be a, a big explosion when everything will be blown up, as it were. There's going to be a wedding. And this wedding will be between Jesus Christ, our Savior, and those who love him, the true church, the people of God. And the church, according to the Bible, is all those men, women, boys, and girls who in the course of time and history have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for themselves as their Savior. And at the end of history, they're going to be married to Christ. Now, biblical marriage is a very lovely thing because there is love on both sides, love in the heart of the bridegroom for his bride and love in the heart of the bride for her bridegroom. It's a very beautiful thing. And that's why the true faith is so precious because it teaches us to know that Jesus loves his people. And that we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. And he, he loves us with an everlasting love. And he will take us at last to glory and to heaven. And so this is the, the great picture that is set before us. And they go out to meet the bridegroom. The time had finally come. Now friend, we know the Lord Jesus has not returned yet. And we know that there are many who scoff at the idea of his coming. There are many who say, oh, you know, where is his coming? All these years have passed, and where is his coming? And we're still waiting. You know, we look back over 2,000 years, and we see that Jesus came into the world for the first time when he came to live for us and die for us and to suffer on the cross for us. And then he rose from the dead and returned to heaven, which is where he is now, on the throne of God in heaven, Lord of all. And all the world belongs to him. And he is proving it by overruling everything for the good of his people. And so we know that he has come and he has done those things, but all this time has passed. And yet the reality is that even still the promise stands. And the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And so we are to be ready. 
And it's the second coming of Christ which is referred to here in this passage. He will come the second time at the end of the world. It's called his glorious appearing. And so this parable paints a lovely picture of the church as it is in this present life. People who want to live for God, who don't want to live like the world. People who want to be pure because they want to please Christ and to keep themselves pure for him. And they know he's coming again, and so they're waiting day after day and year after year, longing to see him, longing to gaze upon him. And so this parable is dealing with how we get ready to meet the bridegroom as the people of God. But then in verses 2 to 4, we're given some vital insight. Look at the text, if you will, verses 2 to 4. Now five of them were wise, and five were foolish, Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. For while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now notice this. All of them have lamps, but half of them have no oil for the lamps. You know, if you have a little oil lamp, you must take a a bottle of oil with you because the oil in the lamp won't last forever. It will burn out. And so if you're wise, you'll take extra oil with you to replenish the lamp before it goes out. Now the foolish ones, they had these lamps, but they had no extra oil in their vessels. And really, they're not taking seriously their calling to give light. They're neglecting the means by which their lamps can do any good. And really what this is saying is this. There is a great difference between a true believer and one who may profess to be a Christian but not have life in Christ. You know, there are still many people who claim that they are Christians and, you know, they go to church and, you know, maybe they read the Bible and maybe they talk about doctrine and maybe they sing like others as well. But not everybody who does all that is a real Christian. A real Christian who is someone who has oil in his vessel with his lamp. The lamp is the profession of Christianity. The oil is the grace of God and the power of God to indeed grant to us that relationship with him. And that grace has to be in our hearts. There has to be that presence and life of the Holy Spirit. And you know, there is a a great difference between common grace and saving grace. Let me explain. You know, common grace is something which everybody has more or less. The goodness of God in his Common grace towards this world. And some people are blessed with much common grace. You know, they're they're decent in that sense. They're they're respectable, they're nice, but they're not true believers. They don't know the Savior. You know, some people, they know a lot about Christianity. They, They can talk and discuss it, but they don't know Jesus. You know, they have a lamp of profession, as it were. But there is no oil of grace in their life. They don't have life in Christ. They they don't have the Holy Spirit living within their heart. They've never been born again. They've never known that, that saving change of life, the intervention of God to turn their back on the world and their sin and to cast themselves upon the Savior. You know, one preacher puts it like this. These foolish ones have a profession of Christ, but they have no possession of Christ. There's a great difference. They have a profession but they don't possess Christ. They've not appropriated him for themselves. You know, let me ask you right now, what about you? You know, maybe you can talk about these things. Maybe, you know, you know parts of the Bible. Maybe you go to church. Maybe you you take certain things, all the rest of it. 
But do you know him? Have you trusted him for yourself? Do you have a saving relationship with Jesus? Have you turned from your sin and trusted him? That's the difference. And say, well, what happens next? Well, verse 5. While the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now, if somebody tarries, they, they hold, they delay. And the Lord Jesus, the precious bridegroom, we're told here, delays. He tarries. Now, he will only come back at the appointed time. But he waits. And how long? Well, we don't know. We don't know. The Bible tells us that he is going to come again but that no one knows when, that's known unto God. And the Bible tells us that it is our duty to, to watch and pray while we wait for him. Now, we, we don't know when the Lord is going to come back. The bridegroom is in heaven. He is waiting there. For all we know, he may continue to remain there as we see it for a long time, or he may come again tomorrow. Regardless, our duty is to be ready for him when he comes. Now you say, well, why is the Lord waiting? Why has he not come yet? Well, we should be thankful that he's not, you know, because we have this great privilege of being under the sound of the gospel and to believe in Christ. Now, he's not come because certain important things have to happen before he comes. And you say, well, like what? Well, for one thing, our Lord is going to take the gospel to every nation under the sun. Do you know, we have been signally blessed on these shores. You know, we've had the Bible for centuries, the gospel proclaimed for over a thousand years, maybe more, and a lot more than many nations of the world. And the Lord Jesus Christ in his love is sending his ambassadors, his missionaries all over the world. And the gospel is being preached and people are being saved and churches are being planted. It is so glorious that this is taking place. Even today, people are coming to know Christ all over the world. And that is why he's waiting. He's waiting till his church is made up, till the very last one of those whom God has chosen is brought to faith in Christ. And then the bridegroom will come. He will finish his tarrying. And see what happens when he delays. Look at verse 5. They all slumbered and slept. Now, we need to make comment on this verse because some interpret this in a very strange way. They say, oh, well, that means that believers... You know, they, they shouldn't physically take too much sleep or rest. You know, they, they should be living on that constant watch, on, on the edge, as it were. But notice this, the wise virgin slept, which means in that sense, sleep signifies normal, ordinary, day-in, day-out life of doing what you've got to do, resting when you're tired, getting up, doing what you've got to do, sleeping when you're tired, getting up, doing what you've got to do, going to bed, getting the rest you need, being faithful day by day. And so that little world, they all slept, you know, is what God expects of us in this period of time between the engagement and the marriage. And so we're to do our duty and get the rest that we need. So it's not a commentary on physical sleep. But there is a danger of being spiritually asleep, which can impact both the foolish and the wise. Now, false Christians, they're asleep and they're without true life and they, they drift even further from any nearness to the truth to error. You know, you see examples of that all the time. You know, people and churches which seem to have a, a good profession and a, a rich heritage and now they're spiritually asleep. You know, in that slumber, they've fallen far from the Bible, far from the gospel. 
and have gone far into the world and only revealing their true spiritual condition. But what is more surprising and concerning is that the wise ones slumbered and slept as well. And it's a challenge because it means even the very best of believers can fall into a spiritual sleepiness and apathy. We can be lulled to sleep by the spiritual darkness and the sleepiness of the world round about us. You know, it's a terrible thing when iniquity abounds and the love of many true Christians grows cold. And maybe we have to examine our own hearts. You know, is, is our love for Christ growing cold? But what is more surprising is that this is the situation here. But then, verse 6, something very important happens. And at midnight a cry is heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. The time had come. The end of the world. We don't know the day or the hour. But suddenly it was happening. And the text says, you know, we will behold. We will behold his coming. Look up and see. He's on his way. He's coming. Do you know, when our Lord returns, every eye will see him. Everybody who ever lived will see him because the dead will be raised. The righteous that love him and the wicked that hate him, all will see him. And the righteous will rejoice and the wicked will mourn and they'll even cry out to the mountains and to the hills that they would fall on them and hide them from the one who comes down to judge the world. And so every eye will see the Savior. And it's a midnight cry. It's a great phrase. You know, when most people are sound asleep, the time when you're not expecting something very urgent to happen, the Lord will come. You know, as the Lord Jesus said, Matthew 24, therefore also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You know, some people have tried very hard to work out when Christ will come again. You know, many have made bold predictions. Many have claimed some insight. You know, in fact, in Britain and America in the early years of the 19th century, there was a real resurgence in interest in trying to work out the date when Jesus would come again. And it's worth knowing that many people in America thought that 1844 was definitely the year when Christ was coming again. And so many of them were so convinced of this date they paid off all their debts, they forgave all their credited, they sold their houses, they finished their businesses, and they all gathered together in a room like this, and they had a prayer meeting. And they longed for the coming of Christ, and, and they sat looking up into the sky, and, and they thought that at any moment there'd be this flash of lightning, and the Lord would appear in all his splendor to come down and take them up to glory. But it didn't happen. And at midnight, there was no cry. And when the light began to break into that room, showed itself in the eastern sky, it became known as the great disappointment. But, you know, they had no right to do that. They had no right to organize themselves in that way. No one will ever work out when Christ will come back. And what we do know, my friends, is that we need to be ready for him when he comes. You know, we better be watching and waiting. We had better be converted and true Christians. That is the first and foremost thing, to know Christ. And then if we are those who know him, the challenge is for us to live for him so that when he comes, we will be found putting him first, living lives to his glory. You know, I remember when I was growing up in the church in Southport there, I remember one of the older members of the church asking me this question, 
What do you want to be found doing when he comes? What do you want to be found doing when he comes? In other words, to live life before the face of God and to the glory of Christ. Now, watching and waiting doesn't mean staring into the sky in some sort of super spiritual vague way as some people think. It means being serious about your Christian life. It means having Christ as your priority. And so that's the emphasis that we see here. Now, what will happen when the Lord Jesus returns? That's the next question. What is going to happen to the wise and the foolish? Well, verse 10, the door was shut. Now, the Lord Jesus appears in the glory and all these virgins, they wake up because they hear the shout, behold, he's coming. And as they wake up, those who are not true Christians, those who just had these lamps, discover that their lamps had gone out. And their foolishness was to think that mere form was enough. Mere religious form was enough. Their foolishness was to think that power for light could be borrowed and grasped in the last minute. That is so dangerous. But those who were the true Christians had the oil of grace for their lamps and they were burned brightly. That's the difference between the true and the false. You know, being ready to enter the kingdom at our Lord's return or should he tarry to remain faithful when our rescue seems long in coming is something we have to take seriously. We have to see that our lamps are being fed, that we are growing in the love of God and, and serving him. And so this parable, it speaks poignantly to people who are not prepared to persevere until Jesus comes. And so they may burn for a while, as it were, but then they disappear. They don't persevere. It's a bit like the parable of the sower and the seed that, that springs up very quickly and looks so promising. But then, you know, the heat of the day, the afflictions of life, and they disappear. It's the same concept. And in desperation, those whose lamps had gone out, they turn to the believers and say, well, give us the oil. You know, lend us some oil. Give it to us. And but they said, well, you've got to go and buy it for yourself. And so they rushed to try and get some, but it's all too late. And on their return, the return that the wise ones had gone in and the door was shut. The door of grace and glory and salvation, the opportunity to be saved. It was closed and firmly shut. And these foolish virgins, they, they begin to shout to the Lord, 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 open up to us. Open up to us. And then those serious and shattering words in verse 12, assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Very similar, you know, elsewhere in Matthew's gospel where, you know, there are those on that day who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonders in your name? Didn't we do this for you? Didn't we do that for you, Lord? I never knew you. You know, it's a sobering reminder that some people will look like followers of Jesus. They may have professed and expressed some affection for the Savior, but they won't endure to the end. You know, even today, many call themselves Christians because of something that happened in the past, but their hearts are now far from God, and they're not trusting Christ today. And so I ask you, my dear friend, right now in your heart, amidst all of the difficulties and the inevitable trials that are sure to test you, to test us, are we trusting Christ now? Even this very night, are we trusting him now? Is yours an active faith in Christ? You know, the foolish virgins had this form of religion, but they didn't know Christ. They were unprepared. And so the warning is there for us. We can't just drift 
and presume. We have to watch our hearts and to be actively seeking the Lord and trusting him. And so what of you? Are you trusting in Christ at this very moment for your salvation? That's how we prepare for his coming. We keep him before us. We keep him in view. We keep looking to him and trusting him, knowing that he is the one that we need. And then that final warning, verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You say, well, you know, as we draw these things to a close, well, 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 what happens to the true believers on that day? Well, look at the text, verse 10. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. So there's a positive element of the door being shut, and a negative. The positive is for the believers. Those who are ready, they are taken in with him. That's what will happen to true believers. Jesus will say to his people, come this way. Come, you blessed of my Father. Come through the door into glory, you faithful men and women, those who are truly converted, those who love me, those who love my word, those who love my people and my cause, those who have have put me first and treasured me. You did what you could to to love me and serve me. You weren't ashamed of me. You lived the, the Christian life before others. You were the light of the world and salt in the world. And the Savior will welcome his people into glory and take them home to this incredible wedding feast. And so the door of opportunity to be saved is shut. No people will be converted after that, but the door of grace and glory will be shut, but the Lord's people will be on the inside. They'll be with the Savior. And think of this. The door will be shut on all those awful and terrible things that the Christian has had to put up with in this broken world. Things like sickness and death and bereavement and loneliness. You know, there's a lot of that in Christian lives. There is a lot of having at times to walk on our own. You know, you think of how some people react to us, even in the town, you know, people avoid us. Times when, you know, they cross the street and and they don't want to know us, you know, or you don't want to talk to him. You know, he's one of those Christians He goes to that little church in Clarence Street, you know, that one with the the white front, and they're ever so serious about it all, you know. They preach about heaven and hell, and, you know, they're strange people in there. You need to steer clear of them. But the Lord Jesus says, come into heaven, my dear people. You have kept the faith. You have been faithful unto death. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And outside the door, everything will be left that is not needed. All that hated them will be outside. Persecutors and detractors and slanderers, all those evil things will be on the outside. Dear believer, you will be admitted to the wedding feast. You know, a feast is a great thing. A royal feast is a wonderful thing. But nothing in comparison with this heavenly feast. You know, to be in the presence of God himself at the table which God has spread to sit with God and with Christ and with the angels in all the glory of heaven itself, in the palace of Christ, as it were, and of his Father. What a wedding it will be. And we are going to be married to Jesus Christ, the very best of all. A bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace.
And as believers, we don't care about anything else. Angels are wonderful, but we're not really interested in angels. It's Christ. Christ, our husband, whom we are to be married and enjoy in everlasting glory forever to be with the Lord. What a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian. You know, I feel so sorry for the world out there. You know, what are they doing? What are they doing even now? They're not coming to the house of God, are they? You know, they, they are there and, and what they are missing, these people. You know, what are they doing? Watching television, you know, maybe one more miserable football match, one more miserable night out when they could be having heaven and God and Christ and, and glory made known to them, sins forgiven and peace with God, all these things. No wonder the world is unhappy. And they need to know these things. And we need to proclaim the gospel to them that Jesus, the bridegroom, is going to come again. And this door to glory is ahead. And for the believer, we will be taken in and that door will be shut. But what about the unbelievers? What will happen to the non-Christians when the door is shut? Well, it's all here in this parable. What a tragic thing. They go to buy they go to try and remedy their situation, but it's all too late. The door is shut. And in desperation, they, they try to call out to the Lord, please, Lord, open to us, let us in. And he will respond not with tones of mercy, but with tones of judgment. I don't know you. The opportunity is gone. They are shut out forever, shut out to everlasting condemnation and judgment and the dreadful wrath to come. It's a tragedy. And I wonder if you realize, friend, that if you don't have Christ tonight, then you will be shut out. The door will be shut forever unless you come to him now. Unless you turn from your sin and trust in Christ. You need to know, some of you are sat here, it's not enough just to come to church. It's not enough just to, to listen to a message. You've got to have personal dealing with Jesus for yourself. And you say, well, is it worth it? You know, maybe your house is important to you. Maybe your job, maybe your holidays are important to you, your leisure. But nothing is as important as coming to know Jesus Christ. And you have to seek him and you have to plead with him that he will have mercy upon your soul while there is yet time. And by his grace, you'll find him. And so I urge you, be sure, even this night, that you have made your peace with God. Be sure that you have repented and that Jesus Christ is your Savior and that you are actively trusting in him. And then rest assured that God will be yours for time and for eternity. You know, the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ, the power of God at work in you delivers you from sin, from helplessness and hopelessness, and lostness and gives you life and eternal life in the Savior. And it's all there for you. Christ has done all that is necessary to save sinners like you and me. His life, his work upon the cross, his glorious resurrection, he is able to save to the uttermost. And if you call upon his name, he will save you and he will keep you. And when you find him, when the cry at midnight goes up, you too will be one of the blessed ones who will go in with him to that precious marriage supper of the Lamb to be in the glory forevermore. Friend, these things are of urgent importance. Don't put them off. 
We need to be ready. And we can only be ready by trusting Jesus for ourselves and living for his glory all the days of our lives and all by his grace. And may it be that we look forward to that day when we shall see him and we shall be made like him. May you be in Christ this night and all to his glory. Amen.